0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading is from Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Paul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to to Christ. Christ.
1: Thank you, Jennifer, for reading that once again. Welcome to Christ Prize, everyone. Hi, my name is Paul Lim. If I haven't had the pleasure to meet you yet, uh, I've been here since 2016, serving as a, a scholar in residence. And during the week, I work at Vanderbilt University as a professor there as well. So between those two places, I really get to have a great time of serving God and loving the people there. So if it is okay, let's pray one more time and we'll look to the word together. Gracious God and glorious Lord, as we look to you now, as there are so many people here in great range of age, from middle school all the way to retirees, with various faith, commitments, and backgrounds. Lord, you know them well. You know them all intimately because you made them. Lord, as we look to you now in opening and reading and listening to and engaging with Scripture, may you be glorified and may your people be edified and encouraged and empowered as well. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so today is the first Sunday after the Titans lost, to the Bengals, 19 to 16, just yesterday. This is also the 15th Sunday after the Predators opened their 21-22 season against Seattle Kraken, losing that contest 4 to 3. This is also the third Sunday after Epiphany, which might be the least familiar one among the NFL and the NHL calendars, But this liturgical calendar used extensively in the Catholic and Orthodox and Episcopal churches reminds us that our life is not merely to be patterned or organized around sports calendars, though a deep, deep committed sports fan that I am, but according to the calendar of the church that keeps in step with the Spirit of God. So what is Epiphany? Epiphany is celebration of the revelation of the saving grace of God to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are emblematically represented when the Magi, that we read about in the Gospel of Matthew chapter two, visited the child Jesus and showed how God's gift of the good news is for all people, not just for the Jews. In other words, it is the gospel for the whole city, indeed much beyond the whole city, it is an inauguration of a new era, which marks and celebrates the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the Mediterranean basin and to the uttermost parts of the then known world. That's what we'll see in today's text, as we have, been re- as we have just read in Acts chapter 9. So today's sermon has the following three points. They all have to do with the idea of pivot. I was watching some of the figure skating stuff, you know, for the Olympics and every time, every four years I get to watch figure skating, right? So whether it is Mariah Bell or Nathan Chen or Kim Yuna or Scott Hamilton, you know, all these, what they always do, every good skater has to pivot before they jump, right? And they have to kind of, and pivoting is very, very important, not only for figure skaters, but also for people, Because pivot allows us to change directions to turn some things that are really kind of difficult and and doubtful or disastrous and turn that into something positive, something that is going to be redemptive. So we're going to use the idea of pivot, and as we look at this chapter uh, 9 of Acts, we'll see these following three points. So what this passage of Scripture teaches about the gospel for the whole city tells that the gospel empowers us to, one, pivot from the tragic pivot from the tragic number two pivot from the conventional and thirdly the gospel allows us to pivot toward the invisible and the invisible hand so look at them in series so the first point is that the gospel of Jesus empowers us to pivot from the tragic we see that in verses 19 20 and 21 So let's take a look at verse 19. If you have your Bibles on your phones or actually printed versions, take a look. Or the bulletin has it right there as well. The NIV renders that verse much more dramatically when it says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Did you notice these words? Three words that I want to highlight. Persecution, killed, and word. Especially persecution and killed, these are not easy or convenient circumstances, nor was it a time of comfort and complete absence of threats. Quite the opposite, in fact. Think about these early adopters of the word, the message, the followers of Jesus. How do you think they understood the core message of the word? As they were beginning to sow both Jewish and non Jewish, Gentiles and non Gentiles, they are beginning to be sort of the early adopters of the word or early adopters of the message, and they are now beginning to think about their life in light of the event of Jesus Christ. So, how would they kind of understand the core message? What word did they proclaim as they went from town to town? I say that one word summed it all. One word, we already sang about it, is L-O-V-E, love. I would say that one phrase sums it all, love of God. I would dare say that one sentence sums it all. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, friends, we often forget this very fundamental and foundational message of Christianity as written in John 3.16, right? John 3.16 is one of the verses that you can actually find in football stadiums, or even today, like you can kind of go in, like there'll be John 3.16 somewhere, whether Kansas City or not in Nashville anymore, not until next fall, but you get what I mean. I mean, this is like ubiquitous biblical text that really emblematically shows us the core message of Christianity is love of God shown through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As I teach various aspects of world religions and interreligious encounters and so on at Vanderbilt, again and again I'm deeply impressed by the fact that Christianity uniquely presents at its core message the love of God made in flesh in Jesus, whose love was most supremely demonstrated by the death and resurrection of the same Word, who became flesh for us and for our salvation. The gospel of love enables us to pivot from the tragic, Not with animosity or fuming hatred or ready for revenge. You see, these early Christian, early followers, early adopters of the word were persecuted and one of their own got killed. But as they went from wherever they were to different places, they were not scattered with a fuming hatred. They were not scattered with this desire to revenge. They were actually going from place to place with a desire to proclaim something about the redeeming love of God. Isn't that odd? Isn't that a beautiful pivot? It's a pivoting from the tragic that we see that I think is really fundamental to the core identity of what it means to be a Christian. It says that as they went from town to town proclaiming the word of reconciliation, the word of redemption, the word of restoration, people, both Jews and then later Gentiles, began to notice a pattern pivoting from the tragic with love. So it says in verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them all. The Lord of love, the Lord of Chesed, the Lord of covenant faithfulness was with them. So that a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So both the God of the New Testament and God of the Old Testament is the one and the same God. God of the Old Testament is God of the promise, God of the patriarchs who promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on that I will be with you and I'll be your God and I'll not leave you until I brought you back to your homeland. That promise God has kept. That same God is the God of Jesus. That same God is the God of Israel. God that we read of in the book of Acts here. That is the God who is covenantally faithful that God never breaks God's promises at all. And it says in this text that many people turn to that Lord, right? Did you hear that? Turning to the Lord means repentance, changing, our, changing of our mind about our formal way of thinking or living and being. Instead of turning to the Lord of love, they found that the Lord of history, the Lord of yesterday, today and forever was embracing them, giving them a new identity, melting the hearts of stone and cold into something of flesh and giving them a new journey as well pivoting from the tragic um, to love because they were worshiping the God who taught them the Sermon on the Mount, who said, in essence, love your enemies. One of the best illustrations of that enemy for, loving for love, love for the enemy is none other than Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., in whose honor we had a lot of us had Monday off for MLK Day, whose foundation and ethic came from the gospel of Jesus, as he reiterated a number of times. He, in one occasion in particular, preached a sermon called Loving Your Enemies on 17th of November, 1957 at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And toward the end of that sermon, he comes to this Kind of emphasis that the ultimate method of conquering the enemy was by God choosing the ultimate act of becoming a loser or defeated, the death on a cross. Now, take a listen to what Dr. King has to say. He says, when the chorus sings, all hail the power of Jesus' name, the power is none other than the power of Jesus to enable the one who was filled with hatred now to love to turn an enemy into a beloved. And our civilization must discover that there is a little tree planted on a little hill, and on that little tree hangs the most influential character that ever came into this world. But never feel that this tree is a meaningless trauma that took place in the stages of history. Oh, no, no, no. It is a telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity, and see the love of God breaking forth and through in time. It is an eternal reminder to the power-drunk generation that love is the only way. It is an eternal reminder to a generation depending on nuclear and atomic energy, a generation depending on physical violence, that love is the only creative, redemptive, and transformative power in the universe. So this morning, as I look into your eyes and into the eyes of all my brothers and sisters in Alabama and all over America and over the world, I say to you, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. And I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love, somewhere, men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed. And then we will be in God's kingdom. So said Dr. King. I love you, I would rather die than to hate you, are his words. Breaking the vicious cycles of hatred in the face of persecution and killing, whether between Russia and the Ukraine and many, many other places throughout the world, it is the power of the gospel to enable to pivot from the tragic into the embrace of love. Let's move to the second point then, shall we? The second point is that the gospel of Jesus empowers us to pivot from the conventional, pivot from the conventional, and we see that in verses 22 to 26. Here we encounter a key episode in the history of early Christianity. Remember, the early Christian community was based firstly in Jerusalem and then went beyond from there, and they were mostly of Jewish background. In fact, the vast majority of the early Christian believers saw that Judaism and Christianity as such were most, mostly continuous, And the key link between the two was the Messiah named Jesus. Quite obvious to many of us here today. They were now trying to figure out the question of Gentile inclusion. So in the beginning it was primarily Jewish and the Jews and Gentiles did not always get along. In fact, quite the opposite. So they were now trying to really kind of wrestle with and trying to square the circle of Gentile inclusion. They're trying to deal with the issues of ethnic diversity and inclusion and the first century in the same way they were trying to figure out today in the 21st. To sort this out, they sent Barnabas from Jerusalem to Antioch. Luke the Gospel writer tells us that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. So how do we know that Barney was full of the Holy Spirit? He was willing to pivot from the conventional. So what did he do? Notice with me in verse 25. He goes from Antioch to Tarsus, which is about 150 miles And what does he do there? He's looking for somebody, and that's somebody's name, Saul. That, I say, is pivoting from the conventional. And let me tell you why. You see, people in Jerusalem send Barnabas knowing that he's actually a peacemaker type. They hear that in Antioch, people who aren't kosher Jews are turning to the God of Israel. And they are starting to become a little bit concerned, or at least curious. They say, okay, hey Barney, why don't you go there and find out what's going on over there because they're turning to our God and they're not of our people. So let's try to figure out what on earth has just happened here. And so Barnabas goes from where he was in Jerusalem to Antioch. But then as he gets to Antioch and sees that what has happened is really great and he really urges them to stay steadfast in the Lord. And one more thing he does, he actually goes in search of somebody He travels 150 miles further and finds this man named Saul. What is so interesting or non-conventional, unconventional about this move? I would say that because this is pivoting from the conventional because the Holy Spirit led him to do it. Because the language is very clear. Unequivocally, Luke is clear that Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit, and one of the concrete proofs of that was that Barnabas was gonna do something that was unconventional, pivoting from the conventional into something that is Spirit-led. You might remember then from Acts 9 that shortly after Saul's conversion, a number of the disciples of Jesus were afraid of him. Understandably, right? Notice with me in verse 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 27, it says that while they were afraid, but Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles and de- declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and now at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So on the road to Damascus, he was going to persecute Christians, but he encounters the risen Christ in this kind of spectacular fashion, and he becomes temporarily blinded, and then he sees again, both physically and spiritually, and then he begins to teach right at the spot that he was going to persecute the Christians at the city of Damascus. So there was a lot of category confusion. Wait a minute, we hear that this guy is coming to destroy us, now he's here to teach us? We don't understand. So there was quite a lot of consternation and confusion in the early church community. Barnabas saw something in Saul, and now in chapter 11, we see that Barnabas continues to pivot from the conventional in calling for Saul and teaching together with him. Teaching together with him, not just for a little bit, but for the whole year. And the outcome which confirmed the rightness of Barnabas' choice as a man full of the, full of the Holy Spirit was that many were added to that number. So let's talk about what would have been the conventional thing to do the conventional thing to do would have been what many others had done. Hey, we are afraid of this guy. We know who he was, and we would just, hey, okay, I'm glad that you're now a Christian, but we don't really want to hang out with you because you're a dangerous lunatic. We don't know about you. Let's just stay, you stay on your lane, we stay on our lane. Somehow Barnabas hears, and, and something prompts him by the power of the Holy Spirit to do that which is unconventional. So the, the gospel of this Jesus Empowers this Barnabas to pivot from the conventional into doing something that was ultimately going to have a tremendous consequence in the history of Christianity. So I don't know about you, but I am a fan of Sia, the Australian singer. I don't know if you know Sia. I've just, I mean, I just some of her songs are in my, you know, uh, playlist. You know, Titanium, and then another song that I, I think just amazing. So, and I don't know about the lyrics actually, but it's called Chandelier, right? And, and it's just like, you know, it's just, I don't know about you, but just her music just really captivates me. Some of the middle school kids are laughing or high school, that's, I take it as an affirmation, right? So did you know that since about 2013, you know this, if you follow Sia, that she's been singing either with a wig that covers her entire face with a big bow at the top or turns away actually from the crowd so that people can see her. Do you know that? And I thought that was like... So what really drew me into her music was not only her musicality, but just her kind of on-stage behavior. Like, why? What? What is that thing she's got on? And I got really curious. What does she look like? I don't know if you've been listening. You probably have the same curiosity. And she kind of face, faces away from the crowd and sings that way. Imagine Nate Tasker starting next Sunday, just wears a big mask and then just. Or either face is that way or we don't know what he looks like all of a sudden. What happened to Nate? We don't know. Imagine that, right? So when asked as to why Sia was doing that, she said in an Insider article that she is, quote, open about her desire for privacy and the negative effects that fame has had on her mental health. She struggled with drug and alcohol addiction early in her career and has been diagnosed with depression and bipolar disorder. She says she even considered suicide in 2010. She has also suffered from chronic pain and has a neurological disease. In some ways, her persona really is an illustration of pivot from the conventional. I'm not, I'm not saying, please hear me out here, I'm not saying that she's a Christian or anything of that sort, but her desire to be evaluated based on her ability to sing rather than how skimpy her outfit might be or how beautiful she looked or not, she was, so to me, she was and remains, at least to me, a pivot from the conventional. That leads me to the third and the final point on which we'll dwell a little bit longer. The third point is that the gospel of Jesus empowers us to pivot toward the invisible and the invisible hand. We see that in verses 27, 28, 29, and 30. So here at our third and final point, the gospel of Jesus empowers us to pivot not just away from something, but the gospel of Jesus allows us and empowers us to pivot towards something as well. Look with me in verse 27. It says something really fascinating to me, as I hope it is to you as well. You see, in verse 27, we find that a group of prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and among them was a man named Agabus, who we will see, uh, re- find out about in Acts chapter 27 as well. But at least on this chapter, it says that through the Spirit, he predicted that a severe famine will come. And Luke the meticulous historically sensitive writer, offers us a very important parenthetical detail when he says this happened during the reign of Claudius Caesar in verse 28. This is what Luke is trying to do. Luke is saying, okay, you might think this is craziness because a prophet comes and says there will be a famine, And he says, oh, by the way, it happened during the reign of Claudius Caesar. He's saying, okay, for those of you who are skeptical, because the whole purpose of writing of the book of Acts was actually to show the rightness of the faith that has been inherited to, to him and to Theophilus. So he says, okay, let me show you that this is not some craziness, that this actually happened during the reign of Emperor Caesar Claudius. So what happened? Agabus comes and he predicts foretells before it happened that there will be a severe famine and what I want to really get your attention on is this what was the response of the people and that's the whole point about pivoting away from pivoting uh, toward the invisible part that I want to share with you here okay and I want you to pay special attention to in verse 29 It says that the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Let me ask you this. It's an important question. Did they send their relief fund before or after the famine had happened? Okay, that's an important question. Yes, before. Then this is why I think it's a very important point to think about pivoting toward the invisible. They don't see it yet. It's not in the visible realm. Famine has yet to occur. But this prophet from Jerusalem named Agabus says, and the early Christian community discerned the the presence of the Holy Spirit in such a way that they said, okay, this man is not delusional. This man is not making stuff up. This man is actually telling the truth that is yet to come. But we're going to trust him. And we're going to let our brothers Barnabas and Saul go to Jerusalem with our relief fund. But guess what else? Many of the Christians in Antioch and beyond were not merely Jews anymore, but Jews and Gentiles starting to come together. And that, I think, is a very, very important point. The Gospel of Jesus empowers us to pivot toward the invisible and the invisible hand of God. More than anything else, it frees us, as we will see, from the gripping hold of money and equally gripping fear we have about the future. They thought of themselves as part of this invisible network of brothers and sisters that transcended ethnic barriers. Jews and Gentiles, if you read, if you're in doubt, read Ephesians. Paul goes on and on and on about the barrier of hostility that has separated Jews from Gentiles and vice versa had been destroyed and demolished and bulldozed down through the work of Jesus, in whose one body, two different bodies are now grafted into one. The Jews and Gentiles are now starting to see themselves for the first time in history ever, actually. So that if you read the Old Testament, the Jews always saw themselves as distinct from, if not superior, to the Gentiles. Why would they think that? Because God of Israel was very particular in revealing himself to the people of Israel. And so they had reasons to feel like, hey, if, God, if this God is God of the universe and we're the unique recipients of it, are we not in some way better? So there was this kind of you know, thing there, and now what is happening is that even in the Old Testament, there was a germinating seed that said, you know what, the seed is not just for the people of Israel, but much beyond. The good news of God is going to be infleshed in Jesus Christ, and that message is for the whole world, not just a small corner in the Middle East called Judea. And they are now starting to figure this out together, and there's going to be birth pains as they try to do it. They are now starting to see themselves, struggling towards seeing themselves as equals, as people who shared their fraternal bond through the blood that was thicker than blood of familial bonds. Some of you have been in fraternities before or sororities before. That sister or that brother in some ways are thicker to you and closer to you than maybe your own brother because there is, and, and multiply that many, many, many times, in terms of the fraternal bond that exists between you and a brother, you and a sister in the name of Christ. That's what is starting to happen right here. Thus this gospel of Jesus allowed both Jews and Gentiles to pivot toward the invisible, therefore giving toward this famine that is yet to come. Giving to the messengers Saul and Barnabas and they're gonna take it forward to Jerusalem. So I've said earlier, minutes ago, that, you know, this passage, this particular uh, couple of verses, at least to me, showed about how they were beginning to be more and more freed from the gripping hold that money had on them. So it is true, it was true then, it is true now, because we'll see some other texts in the, in the Bible where it says that you know, money, can, money had a very, very powerful role in enslaving people in the first century as it does in the 21st century. Here are these words about money and how it alienates humans from our essence. This one thinker said, you know what? Money can alienate, alienate us from our true essence of what we are made to be. So, this writer says, money is the jealous God in face of which no other God may exist. Money degrades all the gods of men and turns them into commodities. Money commodifies everything and every one of us. Money is the universal self-established value of all things. Money gives valuation to everything and everyone. It has therefore robbed the whole world, both of the world of men and of nature, its specific and inherent value. Money is the estranged essence of human work and human existence, and this alien essence dominates us and we worship it. All right. Pretty strong words, pulling no punches, that it says, you know what, money is something that that basically robs us of our own sense of inherent dignity, and then we, but but we don't even know, we we may not even care, but so long as we get more of it, it dominates us and we worship it. You know who wrote these words? Karl Marx in 1844. I, I disagree with a lot of what he says, but I think on this particular quote, he wrote this in an essay called On the Jewish Question. I think he's actually spot on in the diagnosis of the human problem that both in 1844, both in the 41 AD, both in 2022 AD, we struggle with money. I do, and I think you do too. Money can blind us, money can enslave us, and that's why the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, five, it says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Notice that, so first century Christians, they were told, listen, you know what? Be content with what you have because God's really got your back. Now, at the core of the Christian message is to experience the love of God means that in an increasing measure, we're asking ourselves, I'm asking me, I'm asking you, do you trust this God? Do you really trust this God with your wallet? Do you? And that's where the crux of the matter really is. This was shown, this whole kind of gripping grip that money has on us was shown dramatically and powerfully in a huge global hit drama on Netflix. You may know what it is. It's a dra- Korean drama called Squid Game. Any of them seen Squid Game? Okay, some of you. All right, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to recommend you to watch it or not because it's, uh, it became the most watched Netflix content of all time with 6, 1.65 billion hours of watching in the first four weeks. I'll just give you a quick plot, okay? 456 contestants who are basically broke are called in to play this children's game in Korea called Squid Game. I grew up in Korea, I play that game, it's a fun game, but but in every game you play and then you die, right? I mean, you kind of, then you're out of the game. Well, in this case, 456 contestants were, there will be, at the end of the day, one person standing, and that one person will get basically $456 million. To get to it, everyone else has to be eliminated. However you define elimination, in this case, quite literally. And, the, and this became a huge hit. And people have been writing about, you know, philosophical accounts of Squid Game, theological account, cultural analysis, blah, blah, blah. It's been going on, for, and it's just really amazing. And the, 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 the director of Squid Game said this. He said, you know what, Korea, like everywhere else, is now kind of in this global kind of you know, capitalist scheme where I'm not against capitalism per se, but capitalism with ethical desires, with capitalism that actually looks out after the needs of those who are disenfranchised and marginalized. And the maker said, you know, the director said, you know what, I wanted to really illustrate the extreme version of this. You see, this is what it is. The early church community began to see beyond the visible, and they were pivoting toward the invisible. They were saying, you know, money is great to have, but money is not my master. Money is not going to dominate me. It's not going to be the end-all and be-all of my life existence. So I'm willing to give it away for the cause, for the people that I've just become a brother of and sister of, They, they, and we used to not get along at all. We used to despise each other, but because of the new blood that has been infused in my life, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be able to see beyond the visible and see the invisible hand of God. Some of you may be familiar with Adam Smith, the wealth of the nations. He talked about the invisible hand that guides all of human endeavors, economic and otherwise. And Adam Smith as a Scottish Presbyterian said, this is actually none other than God of Israel and God of Jesus Christ. The invisible hand that guided all things to their ultimate destination is God himself, guarantor of the life, both here and now, and the one to come. See, the early Christian community, with all of their problems, they were known for their love for each other. They pivoted through the love of God that enabled them to pivot from the tragic and from the conventional toward the invisible and the invisible hand of God. In the early church, not just in North Africa or Carthage, where Tertullian, this uh, second century theologian, was, but throughout the world, he writes these things. He said that when non-Christians encountered Christian communities or individuals, they were struck by this one thing, how they loved each other. Not how powerful they were, not how rich they were, not how erudite they were, not how, you know, whatever, but they, how they loved one another. There was a deep ethic of love And I want to share something with you. This love that came from God in flesh in Jesus Christ was absolutely unique in the Greco-Roman context. In the first century world, that idea of God becoming one of us, to live among us, to die for us, to save us in that way was completely unique. And everyone, both Romans and Greeks and Gentiles and Jews knew it. So as this early Christian community was beginning to really kind of gather their sense of identity, what did they rally behind? The crucified Lord the one who was crucified to demonstrate to us the love of God. So Jesus said, by this shall all people know that you are my disciples, if and when you love one another, John 13, 35. As we are about to come to the table to receive these elements of bread and juice and wine, I want to remind us that this, is called, this was called the love feast. It was the agape feast. There was initially a meal that early Christian communities shared meals together as an emblematic sign of their belonging to each other, that they were pivoting away from the tragic. They could only do so because the God, of, the God of love was also the Lord of history, that he said, I got your back. They were able to kind of pivot away from the conventional because they knew that out of the ordinary lay the presence of God and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And also they were empowered to pivot toward the invisible and toward the invisible hand of God. As we come to the table, may we be able to figuratively touch the invisible hand of God as we touch and eat and drink the tact, you know, in a very real, literal way, the body of Jesus and the blood of Christ shed and broken for us. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you that you are ever near us and with us in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. May we be able to lift up our hearts as the Spirit empowers us to do that. As some of us are going through various tragic elements of life and experiences of life, COVID and otherwise, as many of us are battling with illnesses and sense of loneliness and isolation, may you continue to empower us with your pivoting ability beyond the tragic and conventional and into the invisible hand of God. The ones that were crucified for us, the ones that are offering these, these gifts to us as a Eucharistic sign of your presence
0: for us and promise for us. In your name we pray with great, uh, great thanksgiving, amen.